Let me pray again. Father, we we know that the part of the service that we're about to enter into is perhaps the most important part. Uh, And we pray, Father, that if there's anything that we do this morning that can be sin-free, sinless, we pray, Lord, that it would be what we're about to enter into now. And that is taking your very precious word given to us uh, and to, to glean it, Lord, from what you would have us understand from it. Father, pray that you would protect us, that you would guard us from from putting our own interpretations and understandings of things and pressing those upon what is not intended here. Uh, We pray, Father, for those who hear, that they would hear truth. Pray, Father, for the one who preaches, who truly is in his own eyes the chief among sinners, that you would do your wonderful work nonetheless. We give this time to you, Father, for your glory, hoping upon hope that it will truly bring honor and glory to the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And at the same time, we pray, Lord, humbly that we would be instructed in a manner that would enable us to live our life in the manner in which you would have us do, knowing, Lord, that we can't even do that apart from you. So, Father, we ask for the empowering of the Holy Spirit for each one of us as we enter into this special time that you would open our ears, Lord, and our minds, but more importantly, Lord, that you would open our hearts to your truth this day. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, we are moving on this morning in our study of Paul's first epistle to his protege, Timothy. Uh, We just finished up chapter 3, and it's one of the principal places in in the New Testament that you're going to find any sense of what the structure of the governing bodies of the church are supposed to be like uh, and who is to occupy those particular positions. And I'm hoping that as we've gone through here and these deacons, these existing standing deacons and elders have been reminded of what the scripture, how the scripture decides or describes their character be, that they have taken time themselves and they've seriously reflected upon these things. Uh, And at the same time, as you guys have been nominating officers through this period of time, uh, that you have weighed things truly in the balance of scripture and those men that you have nominated, and there have been some nominated, uh, that you've done it fully convinced that that these are real characteristics or attributes that you see in these particular men. Then last week we studied that that beautiful doxology about the person and the work of Jesus. And so today, this morning, we're moving into chapter 4. This is a halfway point uh, through this epistle. We've been working on it now. I'm not even sure how long it's been, six months, eight months, maybe a year by now. Uh, But that should give you some measure of how much longer we're probably going to be in 1 Timothy. But we're going to look at the first uh, five verses this morning, possibly. 
But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. Notice here that Paul makes it very clear uh, from the beginning that it's, this is not what he says. This is what the Spirit says. Now, how has that come? Well, more than likely what we're talking about here, the, the, the information that is coming now is are specific things that have specifically been revealed to Paul by the Spirit of God, and he knows that to be true explicitly says, in other words, there's no doubt about it, this is the way it is, this is the way that it will be without question. In later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, when you and I hear later or latter, Immediately, what we want to do is jump to the time that immediately precedes the second coming Christ or at the time of second Christ uh, of Christ's second coming. But I want you to understand something, and that is you consider how this phrase is used in the New Testament. It's, it's basically in reference to New Testament times. In other words, the apostle Paul was living in those latter times. You and I today also are living in the same latter times, and it's going to continue to be so until Christ finally comes. It surprises you and I sometimes when there are people who fall away from the faith. Maybe you have known some. I've known some people that I would have, I would have said they were very devout in their faith. Uh, you know, the evidence in their life just clearly demonstrates that they know Jesus, that they love Jesus, that they, they serve Jesus. And lo and behold, I've seen not a lot but I've seen some of those fall not just a little ways, but fall completely and totally from the faith they once professed. Now, you may know some people like that in your lifetime. You've, you've, maybe you've experienced that same thing yourself. But when it does happen, we're surprised, right? But we really shouldn't be. Because we're told that it's going to happen. Here's Paul is telling us that, that there's going to come a time when people are going to fall. There are going to be people who fall away. And let me just tell you, sometimes when they fall away, they're the people you think are least likely to fall away. But nonetheless, that happens. Jesus, in the parable of the sower, tells us, this is going to happen. He talks about the seed, which is the gospel, falling on four different kinds of soil. First one is beside the road, and he said the birds of the air, they come and eat it up and just carry it away. 
In other words, those are the people that the gospel, they, they may, it may be presented to them, but they don't really even hear it. It just kind of falls to the side. They don't pay attention to it. And before you know, any semblance or understanding they even have it to begin with is completely gone. It flies away. But then there are these two types of people that he describes that will at least for a time have the appearance of having saving faith. The first one is where the seed falls upon the rocky soil. And he says in the beginning that it will take root and it will begin to grow and it looks like it's going to blossom and all that, but all of a sudden it dries up and withers away. That's the rocky soil. Even further, he says this, that when persecution comes, they fall away. And then there's a third type where the seeds fall, or the seed falls amongst the thorns and the thickles. And he says that these are those people who believe basically they can live their life one foot in heaven and the other one in the world. They're fence riders. They haven't really made up their choice one way or the other. And what he says is this, is the worries and and the wealth of the world swallows up whatever faith that they they may have had. So we need to understand that there are people sometimes who profess faith who, who in, in, in many cases show evidence of it, but, but in reality, over the long haul, it doesn't show itself to be real. But hallelujah, he also says this, and don't leave it there. He says that that seed sometimes falls on the good soil. That is the genuine believer. If you think about the book of Hebrews, we did a study of it just a couple of, not even two years ago, maybe a year and a half ago at our home. And let me tell you, we really enjoyed it. It was really good. I know all the people that were there that attended it got a lot out of it. But one of the things in the book of Hebrews that becomes very obvious pretty early on is this. It's a book about, it's a warning book. We're not too sure who wrote it. Some people believe Paul did. Other people, we're not too sure. It's the only book in the New Testament. We don't have a real lot of confidence in who exactly penned this particular book of the New Testament. But it's a warning, and it becomes obvious that the reason the epistle is written is it's written to Jewish people. That's why it's called Hebrews. It's written to Jewish people who have converted to Christianity. But now persecution has come, and they're thinking about going back. They're thinking about giving up on the gospel. They're thinking about giving up on Jesus and going back to Judaism because it was a lot easier. But in that book, there are warnings against that. Chapter 3, verse 12, Take care, brethren, lest there should be any be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ 
if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Chapter 10, he says this, and this is very sobering, so I just want you to understand that. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? In other words, what he's saying here is this, is people who, who profess faith and then leave it would have been better off if they never professed faith in the first place. That it puts them in even a worse position than if they had never made a profession of faith in Jesus to begin with. And then in verse 31, he says this, and this is in reference to the people he's talking about. He says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Pretty sobering. So is there anyone here this morning that's thinking about leaving, thinking about falling away? Is it easy to be a believer? Let me ask you this. Is there a lot of joy in being a believer? There really is. There's joy inexpressible. I mean, I've experienced as a believer and as a pastor some you know, the greatest joys I've ever experienced in life. And I know it's true for you too. But let me ask you another question. Is it easy? Is there never hardship? Is there never struggle? Is it just this nice, smooth, and even road all the way along that you're just, you're just progressing beautifully as far as you're maturing as a Christian goes? Is that the road that you're on? Or is it more of a bumpy road and a road that's got lots of curves and turns and twists in it and ups and downs? Sounds a lot more like that, doesn't it? The important thing, guys, is that we're on the road. And we stay on the road. And let me just say this to you this morning. That you can't keep yourself there. This is where trust comes in. That is this. I know there are people that believe that they keep themselves on that road because now they do everything that God wants me to do, or at least enough to keep me in God's good favor. In other words, what's keeping them on the road is their own sense of good works. Let me tell you guys, if that's you, you will never make it. You won't make it anywhere near the end. Just remember this that God is the one who puts you on the road and God is the only one who can keep you on the road. He speaks about how these who fall away, they pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. It's easy to fall to deceit. It happens to all of us sometimes. 
I know that we need to understand something, and that is even though we are in the position we are with Jesus, it doesn't make us immune to the world and the deceptions of the world. And and Peter describes the devil as this angry lion who's looking for someone to devour. And sometimes we, we, we may be in the jaws of Satan himself at some of the very darkest times. But we understand that, uh, that Jesus is the one who got us there and Jesus is the one who will carry us home. What I would say to you is this, is if we put things in context, you may be saying, well, what are these, you know, how do you know deceitful spirits and what are these doctrines of demons? Well, I would say that context has a lot in our understanding to do, or what our understanding of this is, and that is this beautiful doxology that we talked about. We need to understand that when Paul wrote this, wrote this letter, there wasn't a chapter 4 there. And these were words that, that in paragraphs that ran one after another, just like it happens when you write a letter, that it's all connected. And we have this beautiful doxology about Jesus that we studied last week. And so what I would tell you is this, is Paul was alluding to primarily those people and those deceitful spirits who would take away from the person and or the work of Jesus Christ. They take away from Jesus. And in doing that, they take away from the gospel. And the gospel gets watered down. And before you know it, there's no gospel left in there. We were talking about church history a little bit this morning, and you needed, I don't know if you know this or not, but early on in the church, it didn't take very long before wrongful ideas about certain things began to pop up. And one of the primary points of attack was the person of Jesus. And we talked about the doctrine of, of, of Christ, how he's one in person and two in nature, and how difficult it is for us to understand that. But we believe it because the Bible teaches it. But you need to understand that primarily the, the heresies that came forth early on in the church, they were questioning the reality of who Jesus is. Sometimes what they did was they emphasized his humanity and forgot about his divinity. They, they, they emphasized the fact that he was human. He was, he became, he was a human person that, Jesus, that God sent into the world to show us how to live. That's who he was. And let me tell you, is that true in a way? Yeah, that's part of it. That's just a little bit of the picture. Jesus is our example. He does show us how to live righteously before God, Right? Others, on the other hand, emphasizes his uh, humanity and forgot about his deity. And the interesting thing is, in those days, what happened when things like that got to be a, a, a lot of a big issue, there were church councils that met. And the church spoke out against those doctrinal views that took away from the completeness and wholeness of Jesus. And those things are reflected in things like the Apostles' Creed that you and I recite on occasion. I just want you to understand, guys, that these things are alive today. 
They are. Do you think it's important what people who are Christians believe? Do you? Or do you think just because someone says I'm a Christian, then that just kind of settles the story. There's no need for a conversation after that or, or, or whatever. But guys, let me tell you something. Very often when people are saying that today, they mean something very different than what you think they mean. It's all about knowing Jesus and serving Jesus and loving Jesus and trusting Jesus not only as your Savior, but also as your Lord. He is the Master. You are His servant. So I just want to warn you today, be very careful of teaching. You should be able to identify it very, very easily in which the teacher is taking away from the personhood and the work of Jesus in any way, shape, or form. Because what they are giving you is another gospel which is not the gospel. The second verse in the hypocrisy of liars Seared or dead with a hot iron in their own conscience. That's how I read it. By the, this is to have the New American Standard. By the means of hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. What's a hypocrite? I mean, what does the term mean? To be hypocritical. Yeah, just to tell, you just say one thing and do something else. Tell other people to do one thing, and you're doing the exact opposite thing. Is there a sense in which everyone in this room is a hypocrite? Okay, we all are. In other words, I don't think anybody in this room always practices what they preach or practices what they preach. I don't. I doubt if anybody, I, I, know, I, don't, I know, I know you well enough to know there's nobody in this room that always practices what they preach. It doesn't happen. How do I know that? I know that because you're all still sinners just like I am. None of us has perfect faith yet. And as long as we don't have perfect faith and there's still that vestige of sin in us, we're going to fall short. And let me tell you, something like hypocrisy is something that comes natural to sinful people. Wherever there's sinful people are, there's going to be hypocrisy. Holding people to one standard and condemning them sometimes when they don't make that standard and at the same time holding yourself to a different standard which you can always excuse yourself for if you don't quite make it. Let me ask you something. Do you jump to extreme conclusions about things very easily? You just hear one little thing and then you're willing to just go with that and run with it and, and, and uh, you know, make it into all kinds of things that it really isn't and, and all that sort of thing. In other words, do you wanna, are, you, are you prone to, to, to think the worst about people or do you have more a tendency to think the best about people until you have good reason to think the worst? Is thinking the worst just what comes natural to you?
Paul has given us a, a means here, guys, to identify this sort of thing when it comes along. One of the ways you know that it's there is because of the, the gross hypocrisy in all of it. He talks about, he's talking about hypocrisy of liars. In other words, they're, they're liars. They're, they're telling lies. And how their conscience has been seared. And, in, and literally in the Greek it means as if you took a red hot iron and applied it to it. Think about this the other day. What would we do something like that for? You know, you've seen some of the movies in, 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 in that before we had a lot of the medical advances we have now, and we know this, that this is what they would do. They would, they would sear open wounds to cauterize them. Someone got whacked with a sword. They didn't stitch him up. They cauterized it. They took a red-hot iron, and they, and they melted the skin together, basically, to stop the bleeding. How do you think that affects their conscience? It deadens it. And that's how they're able to be hypocrites. Because the rules and regulations they hold to other people don't hold true to them. It's different. Because it's me we're talking about. He gives us some other ways in which we can know or identify these particular doctrines or these particular deceitful spirits. They do things like forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from certain foods. interesting thing is this, is Paul was celibate, Jesus was celibate, neither one of them ever married, right? And we know that, uh, that Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians, and, and he identifies or, or, or sets forth the idea that there are some advantages in being in the ministry and not being married. That way you can focus exclusively on your ministry and you're not worried, uh, worried about a wife at home and you're not worried about children and things that have to do with them. And Paul says there, in a sense, I wish that all were like me. But at the same time, he says and he makes it very clear that, that even though some are called to that, not all are. that sometimes God calls particular people to celibacy. But there's not some kind of general rule that you can take and apply to certain groups of people. Now let me tell you guys, I cannot imagine being in the ministry without Lori. Seriously. If it wasn't for her, I would not be here. Seriously. <laughs> You only know a fraction of what she does. She does 
so much more than anyone in this room, even I know. She is such an example to me in all kinds of ways. But just recently, Shelby, the, the young lady that was playing the piano last week, is Lori's cousin. She's quite a bit younger than Lori. She's more like Caroline's age. She, even though they're second cousin, Caroline and Shelby are like buddy-buddy. But Shelby started working for a crisis pregnancy center just this last week up in Trenton. And Lori had, I don't know how many bibs and blankets and stuff like this, baby stuff that she makes in whatever spare time she has, which I don't know how she ever has any, which she had intended to sell. And she gave every blasted one of them to Shelby to take to the pregnancy center. That's your pastor's wife. She does stuff like that all the time. So I can't imagine what ministry would be like without her. She keeps me going. She props me up. She loves me unconditionally. And she loves you unconditionally too. Praise God for her. So Paul is saying here, basically, stay clear of teachers who forbid marriage. He also talks about those who advocate abstaining from particular foods. And you may go, well, gosh, what about all those Old Testament laws about eating? You can eat this and you can eat that, but you can't eat this, that, or the other. You and I have to look at things in the Old Testament through the eyes of the New Testament. And let me tell you guys, that's part of the ceremonial law. And Jesus has is, is, is completed, he's fulfilled every aspect of the ceremonial law. However, there are perhaps some people who still want to impose it on other folks. Mark chapter 7, verse 19, Jesus is said to have declared all foods clean. Now, you think common sense ever comes into play when it comes to stuff like this? For instance, we live in a day when people are always talking about organic food. And let me tell you something, all food is organic. Hear me, it can't be food if it's not organic. Okay? But there are a lot of things that are organic that you probably don't have in your diet, like sawdust. How many people here eat sawdust? I mean, why don't you? It's because you can't digest it. And guess what? Termites can't digest wood either. You probably didn't know that, did you? Microbes that live in their gut digest it for them. Termites can't digest it all by themselves. But we know that we can't digest wood, right? Has anyone here ever eaten paper? Did it get digested? 
We all know not to eat things that are beginning to rot too, right? That's because they're bacteria that are causing, and fungi that are causing that rotting, and sometimes those same fungi or or bacteria, they're pathogenic. They cause diseases. I'm saying here, we have to understand this with some sense of reason. In other words, don't go out and just dig through the garbage can and eat everything that's left there. There's reason and logic in, in what we should put into the temple of God, right? Which your body is. And Why? Because God has created those things to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Have you ever thought about how often social things that people do are kind of focused on eating? Think about the after church brunch, how many people would stay if I just announced on Sunday morning, we're just going to stay and we're going to hang around and talk for a few minutes? Especially given it's around noontime. I can remember when we first started doing that, we we're still meeting in Lloyd and Lucy's, Lucy's house. And back in the very, very beginning, we'd only met for a few weeks and people just started bringing donuts and bagels and you know, things like that, and the kitchen was right there, and so we just, you know, went and we wanted the opportunity. If anybody came and visited, you know, how about hanging around and have a donut with us and, you know, those kinds of things. And I can remember Lloyd saying, well, why have we got 100 people? And I was looking at him and I said, well, one thing's for certain, and that is you and I won't get anything to eat, you know, that kind of thing. Some of you may have noticed last brunch, I didn't eat a diddly thing, not one single thing. You know why? Huh? because of this. Because I go around and I talk to people. That's what I do during brunch. And you know what? I would rather be doing that than eating. But I understand that eating is really important. I see it as an opportunity for me to maybe go and sit down by someone that maybe it's the first brunch they've been here or, or someone that would visit the church that day for the first time and they just hung around after whatever. It gives me that opportunity sometimes to break the ice and I want to challenge you guys to have the same mentality about it. When you're leaving here on brunch Sundays, the thought going through your mind shouldn't be, can I be the first in line? But it should be this, who am I going to be able to minister to and fellowship with during this time? And let me tell you, nobody should ever sit by themselves at brunch, ever. Never, ever should you ever see anybody sitting at a table all by themselves. Oh, but I have these regular people that I sit with normally. Oh, but my family's here and so on and so on. No, no excuses, guys. There was a time when you were new and somebody went and sat with you. So go and sit and break the ice. But don't get me wrong, eating is really important. I hope you do it. I, I assume everybody in here does eat. I mean, we have to do that. And there's a lot of joy 
that comes when you're eating with friends and with people you know and with people you just, you just met. Just think about all the blessings that come through something that, that some people would think is just nothing at all. It's just, you know, people eat because people have to eat, and that's just the end of the story. But even eating, guys, is ministry for you and I. It's ministering for Jesus to each other and to other people. God has created all of this variety of food. And just think about this. How would you like it if you lived in a place where about the only thing you had to eat was bananas? Maybe a piece of chicken once every three months. But the only thing else you had to eat was bananas. You wouldn't be very well nursed there. You know that. You understand that, right? But how would you like it? Think people really like living on bread and water? Well, maybe some. Sick people. You ever think about all the variety of food? I mean, do you ever get bored eating? I mean, you just get bored because you and I are so blessed in so many ways. And one of those is we have such a variety of foods. That Walmart down there, I don't know, in the grocery section, they have 30-something thousand items. When we went to Uganda last time, Barbara Johnson came back And when she went into Walmart, after she got back to the States, she went into a panic attack. She had to leave Walmart. Why? Because in Uganda, if you can find anything that has the semblance of a grocery store, you're rejoicing. And you go in and maybe you just really want some ketchup. You go into Walmart here, and they have a whole row of ketchup. All these different brands and all these different sizes, and now they even have different flavors of ketchup. Where is that going to lead? They may have two whole aisles of ketchup next year. But you go in there, and you've got to make a decision. You've got to decide which one out of those, all those, I just want one. And it may take you 15 minutes to figure out which ketchup you want. See, that was, that was what was going on with Barb Johnson. She was so overwhelmed by the variety that we have compared to what they don't have. And they're all gifts from God. To be received with gratitude. sanctified, made holy, declared holy. The word of God in prayer. Jesus has made it clean. For a long time, I used to wonder, why in the heck do we always pray? It's like some Christians, they believe that there's a 11th commandment in that commandment, thou shalt pray before you eat. Right? You know what I'm getting at? So I've wondered. I've wondered at times, you know, why is it that people just, they feel like they they broke the 11th commandment if they don't pray before they eat. I'm not saying we shouldn't be grateful and, and all of that, but what I'm saying is 
Why do we believe it's a necessity that we pray before we eat? Jesus did it. All the time? He did it at times, but we have reason to believe that maybe not all the time. Okay? What I'm saying here is this. Is you can do the right, you can do what is called for, but at the same time not be doing what's called for. My fear is this, is you and I, when we do things repetitively, we forget pretty quickly why we're even doing what we're doing. The reason you and I don't have the Lord's Supper every single Sunday is probably more because of me than anybody else, and that is my fear that by doing that, it'll just become another one of those things that we do on Sunday without really thinking too much about what we're doing. But isn't it easy for us to get into this thing before we eat to say this cursory prayer to thank God for what we're about to receive, but we don't even think about what we're saying? It's not really a prayer that is offered in joy and appreciation for what we're receiving. It becomes something that you just kind of have to do because you're a Christian and Christians pray before they eat. Let me tell you, this verse answered my question. You see what Paul is saying here is that by that prayer, what you're about to partake of, what you eat, is made holy by God. In other words, it's not just regular, normal food anymore. Special. So, you pray before you eat. Let me ask you something. Are you going to pray before you eat lunch today? I would be shocked if everybody didn't. But the real, that's not the real question. The real question is, what are you going to do three weeks from now? Are you still going to be doing it? And you're still going to be thinking about why you're doing what you're doing. What do you think? Anyway, we're going to move on from there next week.